So, as we uh, saw last week, the first distinction that we want to cover as we study biblical law is the distinction between natural law and positive law. Now, like many terms that we use to describe biblical and theological concepts, these phrases are not exactly used in the Bible. However, there are places in the Bible in which sins are described as being contrary to nature or unnatural, and places where people are said to, by nature, do things that are commanded by God. Um, The concept of natural law and the distinction between it and positive law is uh, one that's been affirmed by many philosophical schools of thought for millennia, both Judeo-Christian and otherwise. An important difference, though, is that whereas many philosophers view nature itself as the source of natural law, the Bible tells us that God himself is the source of this law, but that he reveals it to us through natural means. So in today's lesson, I intend to define these terms and to show how they relate to one another, while in the next few weeks I will aim to show how this distinction applies to the various commandments found throughout the Bible. So as I said in my introduction last week, natural laws are those unchangeable laws which are derived from who God is and from who we are as his creatures and image bearers. They define what things are right and wrong for us to do, and so they are eternally binding upon us. Positive laws, on the other hand, are laws which are given for specific purposes at the discretion of the lawgiver, and they can be repealed by the lawgiver Uh, when they are no longer needed. So natural law is written on the hearts of all men, revealed to us through what we call the conscience. Um, And that's the part of us that tells us what's right and wrong. Positive laws, however, are not revealed to us in this way, but have to come to us in a word from the lawgiver. Um, So you might ask, if natural law is written on our hearts and revealed by our consciences, then why do so many people not agree about many things regarding whether they're right or wrong? And we'll see why that is in a bit. So though natural law and positive law are distinct, they're not altogether separate. For a positive law to be just, it needs to serve natural law. So positive laws which do not serve natural law, and especially those which are contrary to natural law, are unjust laws. So for examples of positive laws which serve natural law, think about our criminal laws. We know by nature that murder, theft, etc. are wrong, but it's up to our governments to make the specific laws establishing law enforcement agencies and courts and to determine how such crimes are to be investigated, prosecuted, and punished. So natural law tells us that an action is right or wrong, Um, and that the perpetrator deserves punishment, but the precise apparatus that the government establishes in order to deal with crime is a matter of positive law, although natural law should guide them regarding what punishments are appropriate. So, for example, Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6 says that punishing murders with the death penalty is a moral or natural law mandate. Uh, We'll come back to that in a few weeks when we look at uh, the covenants. Another example that might be more relevant to us in our day-to-day lives would be speed limits. So natural law tells us that it's wrong to act in such a way as to endanger the lives, health, and property of ourselves and others, but 
uh, so say by driving too fast, but what natural law does not do is tell us, for example, that the maximum appropriate speed to drive at on Castlewoods Boulevard is 30 miles per hour. Um, there is a sign just over there which has that number on it, and you know that's how we can know that that's the appropriate speed. Uh, but that's really the only way we could know because nature, our consciences, probably don't tell us, oh, 30 miles per hour is an appropriate speed for that road. Speed limits are subject to the judgment of government officials who establish them. And uh, it's possible that their judgments aren't always reasonable. You know, some speed limit changes uh, that you see on certain roads seem completely arbitrary. And if you judge by the way that most people drive through Castlewoods, a lot of people don't seem to agree with the 30 mile per hour limit over there. But since there's nothing morally unlawful about obeying what the speed limit, whatever it is, even if you don't agree with it, you should still obey it because it was established by God's ordained authorities. If the government enacts a positive law which commands us to disobey either natural law or a positive law from God, then that would be an unjust law that we must disobey. Um, a few weeks ago, Ben preached on 1 Kings 21, and King Ahab commanded Naboth to sell him his land. Now, ordinarily, selling land is not an immoral act. But because the law of Moses in Leviticus 25:23 prohibited the Israelites from selling the land that God had allotted to them, Naboth rightly refused that command from the king. Another example, in Acts 4:18, the council orders Peter and John to no longer teach about Jesus. But in verses 19 to 20, they respond that they had to obey God rather than the council. We later see Christians persistently worshiping God and preaching Christ in secret despite government prohibitions, and this is absolutely commendable. However, if the government enacts a positive law which does not command us to disobey God, but which also does not maybe properly serve the law of nature, in other words, it's an unnecessary law that they pass, we would still need to obey that because obedience to those whom God has placed in authority over us is still a natural law mandate. So, for example, going back to the speed limit uh, example that I mentioned earlier, let's suppose that the state arbitrarily decided to set a statewide speed limit of 30 miles per hour, even on the interstate. Now, that would be very unreasonable, and it would even be burdensome to us, but we would still need to obey it because it's not commanding us to disobey God. So, regarding natural law, I want to go through what the Bible says about God's being revealed to man by nature. And the passage of Scripture that speaks most clearly and extensively about this is Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20. So if y'all would please turn there. Um, I don't think we'll have time to read all of it, but we will survey Paul's argument as it pertains to our topic. So, starting in verse 16, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, this letter to the Romans is Paul's lengthy discourse on the gospel of salvation. But in order to understand salvation, we must first understand why we need to be saved. So to that end, could someone please read from verse 18 to uh, the end of chapter 1? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of the people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God is shown to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For, through, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. And therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what had been created instead of the Creator who was praised forever. Amen. Uh, yeah, actually you can stop there because since we started late, just for the sake of time. Um, so... In verses 18 to 25, Paul is explaining how everyone in the world is guilty of dishonoring God. In verses 19 and 20, he points to God's revelation of himself in nature, saying that the reality of his being has been made plain to all of us by his creation. But he goes on to say that in spite of this clear revelation, people have not honored him as God or given thanks to him. We've instead been foolish and chosen to worship other things in his place. Now, in our modern post-enlightened culture, the idolatry that we see tends to be a bit more abstract than it was in Paul's day, but it's no less real. All unbelievers today have things that occupy God's rightful place in their lives. And even we Christians are guilty of falling into this often in our own lives. In verses 24 and 25... He tells us that it is because of this idolatry that God has allowed us to pursue aberrant and impure desires, dishonoring God and um, dishonoring ourselves because we have dishonored God. And it's because we've chosen to believe a lie that God isn't really who he's revealed himself to be. And so it's been said that sin is to a large degree its own punishment. I think this passage illustrates that maybe more than any other in the Bible. So then in verses 26 to 31, he lists examples of these dishonorable passions, pursuits, and mindsets. And all of these we could see if we were to spend time looking at each one are contrary to the Ten Commandments. Uh, And we will look at examples like this um, and kind of analyze them in connection with the Ten Commandments next week. In verse 32, 
Paul declares that everyone knows based upon the natural revelation that he appealed to a few sentences before that those who do these things deserve to die. Now, he's not talking about capital punishment. Not all of the things that he has listed here were even criminal offenses under the Mosaic law. Some of them, in fact, pertain to matters of the heart and not outward action, and the Mosaic civil laws only punish outward actions. Uh, but even then, some of the things that Paul lists here were not capital or criminal offenses under the Mosaic law, even in those cases when they were manifest in outward action. Um, it's also not to, meant to be an exhaustive list or a list of only certain sins which merit death. What this list of uh, sins is that Paul gives us here is a sample representing every kind of sin. And so what he's saying is that all sins deserve death. Um, later in the epistle, he, he makes that statement, the wages of sin is death. So what he's saying here is that everyone knows in their hearts that these things justly merit the wrath of God and judgment. So then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, uh, Paul rebukes the hypocrisy of those who judge others for breaking God's law while not being careful to keep it themselves. I think his main focus here is on those Jews who look down upon the Gentiles for their law-breaking. And the reason I think this is because in verses 9 through 11, he affirms the impartiality of God in the, the judgment coming upon evildoers and the uh, reward for the obedient will come to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Um, in verses 12 to 16 of chapter 2, he distinguishes between those who have the law, that is the written law, so the Jews, and those who do not, which would be the Gentiles, showing that people in both categories are guilty of sin and are condemned to perish for it. And it's in this section that we get Paul's explanation of the practical operation of natural law in verses 14 to 16. And in fact, it was through my study of these verses that I came to be interested in teaching on this topic. So would someone please read chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Thank you. So here, Paul is showing that the Gentiles' lack of the written law does not absolve them of responsibility to the moral law. And it's because God has written the requirements of his law on their hearts with their consciences bearing witness to it. You see, even those people who have never heard a word from the Bible have a sense of right and wrong. I think we can all agree with that. And this is from God. Every human being is accountable for the judgments of his conscience. So if my conscience tells me that I should do something and I don't do it, or if it tells me that I shouldn't do something and I do it, I'm disobeying God, and my conscience accuses me of that. Since there's not a single person in the world who's ever lived besides Jesus who has never sinned against conscience, this proves that we all, even those of us who have never heard a word from the Bible, are sinners. And he also says that our consciences excuse us. 
This does not mean that they actually excuse us from the judgment of God, but he's saying that we come up with excuses both to soften our own guilty feelings in our minds, as well as in the case of unredeemed sinners uh, attempting to vainly justify their sins before God. And this is what that uh, becoming futile in their thinking and having their foolish hearts darkened that he mentioned in the previous chapter means. It's the consequence of our idolatry. So God has created the conscience to guide us in obedience, but because of our sinfulness, its functionality has been corrupted. Um, This is what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 7.26. He says, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The fallen conscience seeks to avoid guilt either by rationalizing sin or convincing us that what we're doing isn't actually sin. Now, that doesn't take away our responsibility either to our conscience or to God's actual law. If God's law commands me to do something, but I'm able to avoid it with a clear conscience, I'm still sinning because I'm disobeying God, even if I'm doing so out of ignorance. On the other hand, if my conscience commands me to do something, but it turns out that God hasn't commanded it, then I'm also still sinning if I don't do it because I'm disobeying my conscience, because I'm, I'm doing something that I think is sinful, even though it really wouldn't be if I had a better understanding of God's law. Um, I'll just pause there. Does that make sense, or do I need to explain anything further? All right. Good? Makes sense. All right, good. Um, <laughs> appreciate that. So from verse 17 of chapter 2 all the way to verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul goes on at length to establish that no one, Jew or Gentile, will be able to justify himself by the law. It's because none of us has obeyed it perfectly. And that's what God requires of anyone who would be justified by obedience to the law. Um, Would someone just read verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3? So that every mouth may be stopped. So understanding God's law truly means understanding that you will have nothing to say in your own defense on Judgment Day. I remember once hearing that Martin Lloyd-Jones was asked what he believes defines a Christian. And his reply was, one whose mouth has been stopped. So the Christian is the one who knows that he has not merited God's favor by anything that he's done. And so if we're to have God's favor, it can only be by God's grace. In verse 20, Paul says that through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, this is a verse that we'll come back to in a future lesson when we look at the second use of the law, the pedagogical use that I mentioned last week. Um, After this point in Romans, Paul, who now has thoroughly preached the condemnation of the law, then turns to the gospel And this is very important. And this is why we need to preach the law before we preach the gospel. Because it's through the law comes knowledge of sin. And it's because of this knowledge of sin that we are persuaded of the need for God's mercy and grace 
which are revealed in the gospel. If you ever have someone tell you that they don't need salvation because they're already a good person, bring them to this passage that we've been looking at and explain these, these things that we've been discussing. Um, another clear bit of evidence of natural law is found in the fact that mankind as a whole is subject to death. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And 1 John 3, 4 says sin is lawlessness. If those who have not received the written law are not, if they are still subject to death, that can only mean that they are still under the condemnation of the law, which means that being under the condemnation of the law does not depend on having the written law. Paul explains this in Romans 5, 12 to 14. Could someone please turn there and read that? Thank you. So without natural revelation of God's moral law, the universality of man's subjection to death would be unjust since um, death still comes to those who have never received the written law. So now that we've laid this groundwork of natural law, in our next lesson, when we look at the moral law, we'll look at quite a few passages of Scripture which I hope will prove that the moral precepts that are summarized in the Ten Commandments are that same law that God has revealed to us all through the ordinary natural means of the conscience and which continues to be the standard of right and wrong for us even in the New Testament. So we'll start next week looking at some Old Testament uh, examples showing people demonstrating knowledge of, of um, some of the Ten Commandments without there having been any evidence that those commandments had ever been told to them. And we'll also look at some Old and New Testament passages showing that the Ten Commandments were not confined to the Israelites and did not cease with the inauguration of the New Covenant. So we'll finish out today's lesson then with a brief look at positive laws. Now when it comes to God's law, the context for positive laws is the various covenants that God has made with man. Um, the first paragraph in chapter 19 of our confession that we looked at last week mentions the one positive law that God gave to Adam under the covenant of works, which was the command to not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, surely natural law was in play here as well. He had that written on his heart, revealed by his conscience, as we've already discussed. And since this was before the fall, his conscience was not seared by sin. It was functioning properly. And so he was not subject to the same sort of confusion about natural law that we are with our sin-corrupted consciences. He knew God's moral law perfectly, and before the fall, he was obeying it perfectly. But regarding the forbidden fruit, there doesn't seem to have been anything... Uh, 
about the tree or the fruit itself that would have made it apparent to his natural uh, faculties that there was anything wrong with it. It was in a garden in the midst of a bunch of trees that were bearing fruit that was good to eat. And uh, Genesis 3.6 says that the fruit of this tree appeared to Eve to be good for food. So the only way they knew that it was forbidden to them was because God had told them directly. And it was given by God as a test of Adam's obedience. But by violating the positive law, they did also violate the law of nature. I've been listening recently to the Modern Merriman podcast with Tom Hicks and John DeVito. It's very helpful on law and gospel uh, topics. And in one of the episodes, they looked at Adam's sin and how, even though it was a violation directly of a positive law, it also violated all of the Ten Commandments. Now, in the podcast, they only listed a few of the commandments as examples. But sometime later, I was reading uh, Human Nature and Its Fourfold State by Thomas Boston, which Richard recommended while he was teaching a few months ago. And uh, I came across a passage where he listed out how all of the Ten Commandments were broken by eating of the fruit. And I thought about quoting him here, but it was about a full page long in the book, so I figured I probably don't have time for that. Uh, but just to give a quick summary, um, we could say he violated the first commandment by wanting to exalt himself to be like God. Um, he violated the second by not worshiping God rightly. He violated the third by despising God's word and his attributes. The fourth, by giving up the rest that he had with God in the garden. The fifth, by not honoring God as father. The sixth, by bringing death into the world. The seventh, by not doing his duty as a husband to protect his wife from the enemy. The eighth and tenth, by taking due to covetousness what wasn't his to have. And the ninth, by entertaining Satan's lies. And we could also analyze our own sins similarly and see how single actions that we commit can violate God's moral law in many different ways. And as God is one and the moral law reflects his character, this should make sense. Um, so anyway, back to the covenantal context of positive laws. Uh, the forbidding of the fruit was the positive command of the Adamic covenant or the covenant of works. Um, the Abrahamic covenant introduced the positive command of circumcision. The Mosaic covenant continued the covenant of circumcision, but then as the establishment of the Israelite nation contained many positive civil laws for their governance, and then also since it was a type of the church, it contained ceremonial laws instructing them in how to worship, uh, and the purpose of these was to reveal the gospel through types and shadows. The New Covenant also contains positive laws. Our manner of worship, the sacraments, for example, are commanded of us in Scripture, but unbelievers are not commanded to do them and are even prohibited uh, from some parts of what we are commanded to do. Note, for example, Paul's warning against unworthily partaking of the Lord's Supper, which our pastor reminds us of each time we observe it. All of these commandments were not binding until the time when they were actually given in a word by God, and they were only binding upon certain people. So therefore, we should understand these as positive laws. In an upcoming lesson, um, we will look 
at specific positive laws in more detail, especially the ceremonial and civil laws from the Mosaic law, and see why we should understand them as positive laws and why, despite the fact that we are no longer under the Mosaic covenant, these do still have many things to teach us. Um, so before we close, does anyone have any questions or comments? Tell me if you agree with this, but just a little warning about natural law and the use of the word positive, positivism, philosophical positivism that people will use a lot nowadays. Mm-hmm. They totally divorce from the idea of metaphysical and God. Yeah, and that's why it is very important to explain what we mean by these terms when we talk about them. Um, I mean, there are a lot of examples of you know, terms that have been used by Christians throughout history that are perfectly good, but that are badly misused today. And I know some people would say, well, we should stop using them since other people have, have distorted their meanings. But I tend to be more on the side of let's try to reclaim this terminology and its correct definition. Anything else? Mm-hmm. You know, instead of sin. Right. Because it, you know, cushions us a little bit, I guess. It makes us feel better. Yeah. Yes, we need to, uh, again, use biblical definitions of sin, like what in, I quote in First John, sin is lawlessness. It's not just, you know, making a mistake. Anything else? Still wondering. <clears throat> no, I'm just kind of throwing stuff, just thinking a little bit out loud. But like that, that very last line you have there, attempting to obey positive laws of a covenant you are not in may be sinful. Mm-hmm. So it's like we, we as Christians have to be careful. Like we read all kinds of commands in the Bible, any of them that are good. Yeah, and we do need to remember, like, uh, God does give a lot of grace in this area. I mean, Paul talks about in a few places that Christians who choose to observe the Jewish feast can do that with a clear conscience. We're just not to bind other people to those kinds of things. Um, On the other hand, if a Christian were to, you know, build a temple and go sacrifice an animal, that would be sin. So... Legalism, yeah. things like that become, you know, there's nothing wrong, I don't think, personally, there's something wrong with you deciding you're going to follow certain restrictions. But when you become forced out upon someone else, yeah. that becomes legalism, and that's where you cross the line, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, that's one place where you cross the line. Another place where you cross the line, of course, would be if you uh, sort of look to that as your uh, assurance. Right. All right.
someone have the time? Okay, good. Any anything else? We've got a couple more minutes. Um, let's see. Um, Jay, would you close us, please?